guys, welcome to Relatable. Today I am talking to Bridget Fetisy. She is a comedian, she is a writer, she is a podcaster, she is an interesting, down to earth, very unique person. And I'm so excited to hear your perspective. She has kind of become a political, cultural commentator over the past few years, but she's just got a very interesting life story. Now, this is gonna be a little bit different of a conversation. We're not on the same page on a variety of issues. On a lot of important issues we are, but we have a different theological, religious perspective. We've got different perspectives on social issues, on cultural issues, probably even quite a few political issues. Um, But I I just love her. I love talking to her. I know that you're gonna be encouraged uh, by her story. We're gonna talk about addiction. We're going to talk about sobriety. We're going to talk about God and marriage and starting a family and all of that stuff. I wouldn't maybe listen to this conversation with kids around. There's some things that you're maybe not used to hearing on Relatable, but I know you're going to love this conversation. So without further ado, here is Bridget. Bridget, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for having me. Yes. Can you tell everyone who may not know who you are and what you do? Yes. Uh, my name is Bridget Fetisy, and I am a writer, comedian, and I have a podcast and a YouTube show. The podcast is called Watkins Welcome, and the YouTube show is called Dumpster Fire. And I'm just a wife and human. <laughs> you're a human. Yeah. Okay, tell me why your YouTube show is called Dumpster Fire. So Dumpster Fire evolved. I had been wanting to do it for a while, but I luckily have a producing partner, my cousin, who always dials me, you know, will put put a little bit of hold on things, projects that I'm ready to go on. Uh, we were getting the podcast started and had to get that plate spinning. And then the podcast is much more thoughtful. It's like one-on-one interviews. You've been on it. And it's... Um, not always serious. I often have comedians and it's fun, but it's definitely more soulful, I think. And Dumpster Fire, we were just, it was in 20, I think it was leading up to, it was like 2019. I guess we just celebrated two years. So two years ago, my, I always felt like people were misinterpreting my tweets in particular, just because I would be kind of snarky or sarcastic and people would take it seriously. And I'm like, I wish people could hear this tone. And I had been wanting to do just a show making fun of like the insanity of everything. And we were leading into the 2020 election and it was just so crazy. And I needed a place to put all that crazy. And so we started Dumpster Fire in my garage, basically, just as a way for me to get, be like, blah, very different than Walk-In's Welcome. And that's just about like politics, culture, politics, life, culture, anything. I mean, it could we make fun of ourselves where our whole kind of mantra is that we'll make burgers out of your sacred cows. That's <laughs> just like our whole thing. And it could be anything. I mean, we were making fun of Russell Brand barely like just teasing him. And I was our audience was so mad. And I was like, oh, you didn't think that was that when we you said your sacred cows. Yeah. You didn't realize that it meant you, too. Yeah. So we just have fun and it's my cousin and my former roommate and they're on the other side of the camera. So there's a lot of banter. People always joke and say, um, it's it's one of the meaner comments, I guess, was if I wanted to feel like I was standing at a waitress station, I would go back to work in the restaurant industry. (laughs) And I was like, I'm doing my job if that's what this feels like. Yeah. I want yeah. it to just feel very, it's very kind of populist, I think. We make fun of like the olds and the poors and our, we just are irreverent. Yeah. And you are not necessarily a conservative or do you consider yourself a conservative? No, I don't think, I think socially I still don't share a lot of the values. And I I come from being very much a liberal, although I don't necessarily share a lot of the social values there the more extreme ones lately. And so I think like many people, I would call myself politically homeless. I'm a registered independent now. I know that that means nothing and seems kind of wishy-washy, but I just can't, I don't, I don't feel like I belong really anywhere. 
And you used to be a Democrat, though? You used to be a registered oh, yeah, Democrat? For, and then how did that evolve? Why are you now an independent? Um, in 2015, it really started. I think a lot of it had to do with getting sober. I got sober in 2013 and just started writing for Playboy in 2015 and stumbled into the culture wars, knowing nothing about the culture wars, by the way. I was not, I didn't go to college. I was been waiting tables and drinking and just trying to be a writer, but mostly trying to do fiction and comedy in LA and do like scripted fictions. And not, wasn't on Twitter, wasn't on any kind of, I just wasn't involved. And when I started writing for Playboy, you have to, I started doing Twitter in 2013 when I got sober because I needed something to do with my lots of excess time. And it became my new drug of choice. And I stumbled into the comedy and writers and I was like, oh, these are my people, the writers. And I, I suddenly understood what you could do with Twitter as a comedian or a writer. Mm -hmm. It was like the family guy writers and they were so funny. And I didn't even know political Twitter existed. I yeah. was just operating in a completely separate space. And then I started writing for Playboy because it was more social stuff and commentary on I mean, I really was like a, a chick from the, you know, from the Maxim years who stumbled into this kind of fourth wave feminism of online, very online millennials. And I did not know, I thought I would get very criticized by the right, and I did, but I had no idea how much I would get from the left for saying things like real man. And I didn't know that. So why were you criticized <sighs> by people on the right? Like what were some of the things that you were talking oh, about? Oh, I mean, I was like showing my boobs online and just being just a lot of be, being feminist. Like so this is the downfall of societies, women like you. And um, so you saw yourself as like genuine girl power, female empowerment type feminist and but I didn't even see myself right. as a feminist. Yeah. That's what's funny. You were just saying what you I was just being like believe. a yeah, I was having fun and I was being I did feel I did rage against a lot of the double standards that I felt like existed between men and women. And I was very behind the like free your nipple free the nipple and um I just also am kind of a I think I was working through a lot of stuff too. Just working through a lot. I was raised Catholic, very Catholic. So I had a lot of guilt around sexuality. I was raped when I was 17. So I had a lot of trauma. I was, um, I just was a hypersexual, hyperactive slut for many years and proud, proudly, obviously, at the time and felt like, I could kind of heal myself through prom promiscuity. Fun fact, that didn't turn out to be the case. Yeah. <laughs> but I really kind of, there was a whole system that supported a lot of that, that mentality. Yeah. And I also think that I really, what I've really come to terms with is that I think because I was dating such D-bags and... I was not choosing the best men, obviously, not putting myself in great situations. I was still partying and drinking, and I was in cities, and men have many options in cities, and I was choosing always the kind of player guys because I like the challenge. And I just told myself that I would be single forever, that I didn't want kids, and a big part of me because of my history just felt worthless and like I didn't deserve love or any of that if I dig under a lot of the kind of lies I was telling myself on top. So I think with a lot of that was playing out, but I was also writing two men at a time when men were really on the defense, which it was a weird time to be writing for men in 2015. And I was like, guys, girl, I didn't, I I wasn't like one of those people who was, I wasn't feminist and I wasn't anti-man and I didn't feel like the patriarchy was holding me down. And so it was interesting to be writing for all these men at a time when they were so so much on the defense and I felt like 
people who are screaming toxic masculinity and telling men to get in touch with their feelings were also telling them to sit down and shut up. And there was a lot of paradox around that. Yeah. And that's when I started getting attacked from the left mm. was just for being internalizing misogyny. misogyny yeah. <laughs> so on the one hand, conservatives were criticizing you for maybe being a too loose, yeah, my loose libertine-ish <laughs> yeah. or being what they saw as some kind of radical feminist who mm -hmm. was showing your boobs online. Mm -hmm. And then people on the left were mad because you weren't mad enough at men mm -hmm. and you weren't demonizing men enough. So that's kind of how you found yourself in the middle and in the middle of culture wars without even really trying to be in the middle no, of culture No, not wars. at all. I mean, I was learning terms faster than I could even, I didn't know anything, I knew nothing. And then what started happening was 2015 was right around the rise of Trump yeah. and everyone kind of started losing their mind, but all these feminists were criticizing Ivanka and Melania and I was like, guys, I thought we were supposed to just not be criticizing a woman for her looks or whatever she was wearing and I was seeing so much hypocrisy and that was frustrating to me i'm like let's criticize their ideas like we've been talking about or you've been talking about and and i was starting to through writing to all these men and it was really when i started listening to a lot of their own struggles and i, I always kind of had this idea that men just had it easier and hearing what they had gone through with things like erectile dysfunction, balding, all of these problems that men deal with, not feeling like they can show their emotions or cry and having men write me these long essays telling me how they were feeling about different aspects of their emotional landscape was really eye-opening to me. Mm. And But also because of the kind of red-blooded American male that I was speaking to and hearing from, I was exposed to a more center-right conservative man. And they were writing to you as you were writing for Playboy or mm -hmm. just because they found you on Twitter? No, they were writing to me because I would say, have an idea for a topic. And on Twitter, I'd say, hey, guys, I'm writing a piece about balding. Send me an email to blah, blah, blah. And I would get these long essays from men about their experience and they were moving. I would be crying reading like, some of these things. Like talking about just how hard it is to... Yeah. I mean, the grief, really. It, that's what I really realized reading all of these emails was that there was a profound sense of loss, almost like you experience when you lose someone you love. It is a grieving process because you're, you're grieving this death of a part of you. And they... It was just fascinating. And then yeah. I would go into a lot of the research about it and different studies and... So I was still mouthing off on Twitter at the time. And I think the first time that I really realized how, I mean, I always, I never really thought I knew much, but I was a very mouthy kind of liberal, just thinking that I knew all the things, like I was in the right. And there was a school shooting. I don't remember which one, <laughs> sadly. And I was mouthing off about it. And then my audience, which had been, um, I'd been cultivating through Playboy, they pushed back and I was like, whoa. I read some of the comments and they were very thoughtful. They were just like, this isn't blah, blah, blah. So I had them write me essays about how what, what their opinion was on so this. So you had said something about it being about guns or something? I said something like, we need to take I, something very just, and when, I, when they were commenting, I stopped and I was like, oh, I don't know anything about guns. Like, yeah. I, I don't know how to hold a gun. I couldn't load one at the time. You couldn't tell, I couldn't tell you what a single gun law in California is. I don't know what you have to do to get, I know nothing about this and I'm mouthing off about it. And that was really the beginning of recognizing how absolutely nothing, I, I knew nothing about anything. And... As that process started, I just started getting curious and I wasn't somebody who was like, paying attention to politics. I didn't, I just had my head down and I was working trying to get through the day. I think many Americans got pulled off of the kind of apolitical sidelines in the past five, six years mm. for similar reasons. They just were forced into it, whether it was like they got kicked out of a mommy group for saying something or they yeah. stepped over lines they didn't know existed. And that's... When I really um, stumbled, so I wrote some, then I started writing more political things. Not political, just cultural things. I wrote a piece for Playboy, which I was shocked they let me write, um, 
called uh it was all about like the silver lining of of like the trump if he won but i posted it on inauguration day um and it was just <laughs> not good like so people just talking were about hey here it. are some positive <laughs> yeah here's some positive things and that was like the height of people's anger because that was also like that, that crazy like the, women's march yeah, too the with pink the hats yep. and all that so people were just not they didn't have the appetite for oh, silver lining I shed at the moment. like 600 i think 800 followers immediately right after posting it yeah and I started, that's when people started calling me kind of a right wing. Or, or Did you vote for Trump in 2016? No, I yeah. voted for Hillary. Yeah. I was like, I, I, and it was, I voted for her for the worst, lamest reasons. I didn't like her. I just wanted to be able to say to my niece that I voted for Hillary, like that I voted for the first female president if she won not even really thinking like my, my brother and his family, like they're not exactly like yeah hillary supporters uh, yeah she probably would have been like why <laughs> <laughs> yeah why'd you do that for me i didn't ask you to <laughs> and also like you're an idiot um <laughs> it's like wow, wow you shouldn't admit that <laughs> but okay so that was your reason though in 2016 you published that 2017 mm-hmm. beginning inauguration mm-hmm. and then would you say that you evolved even more like while trump was president or did you kind of stay in that messy middle of being like well i still don't like what trump is saying or doing over here but also the left is kind of crazy like how did you navigate the trump years not great i mean i did i navigated them but i never liked him his character yeah somebody sent me something leading up to 2020 that really stuck with me they said I could never vote for Trump, even though I like him, but I like his policies or or even just not like leaving us alone for the most part um, and support that. I could never vote for him and look look myself in the mirror and tell myself that character mattered. And that was something that resonated with me because I felt even though I didn't vote, I didn't vote for Biden or Trump for the in 2020. I just didn't. I abstained from voting for a president because I just don't want to be bullied into voting either. And everybody was bullying me on both sides. You know, they're like, you're just not, you're not, I'm like, I'm in California, A, my vote doesn't matter. B, I don't, you can't bully me into voting either way. I hate that. Um, So I just felt, I saw, it was hard though to navigate because not knowing anything, not having like a poli side degree, not following politics other than, left-wing talking points and NPR. I just wrote an essay about how that NPR was like my personality. And because I was in primarily left-wing yeah. environments, I was never challenged. And I just thought I was right. And everybody agreed with me. Yeah, And I didn't really have to think things through. I was lucky to have people who would push back. But that was really those kind of messy years were when I relied on... I mean, weirdly, I had to kind of rely on never Trumpers because they were the people who were pushing back against Trump from the conservative side. And but some of them were reasonable enough to I it was hard to figure out, is this something every president has done that's being completely blown out of proportion because it's Trump or is this something truly unprecedented, truly unprecedented because it's Trump? And so navigating that was hard and trying to stay balanced and just figure out like is this unprecedented or is this just a normal thing that's being yeah yeah that was that was tough but then I kind of I started doing right-wing media because they were the only people who would talk to me yeah I really wanted to talk to the left and be like you guys should care about the fact that you're pushing people like me away and as why do you think that is like why do you think that the right seems to now be more welcoming of heterodox views like you coming on my show i'm a conservative evangelical we probably disagree on a lot of things we know we disagree on a lot Uh of things but maybe someone on the left wouldn't welcome you on their show because you are too heterodox or you're just not quite in line with what they deem acceptable yeah i'm i'm not sure i think the the things that you and i agree on are basic first principles like freedom of speech and the ability to have a conversation and the ability to disagree and the ability to maintain your own opinion and debate these things vigorously. And that is something that the left has seemed to lost. They've lost that completely. Mm. Where if you 
they don't want to hear dissent. They want to shut it down. They don't want to hear people who might be pushing back. It's I, I just felt like I was a kind of repeat customer at a bar that got taken for granted. Mm. And then there were all these like new hipsters and they started catering to them and they stopped serving, you know, like Bud Light or whatever. And <laughs> And I've yeah. had to find a new bar. Yeah. And they didn't really want me there anyways anymore. So I I got called a lot of names, obviously, like a reactionary. And uh, I, I also really, I was in comedy at the time. So I was seeing it in the sex area where there was this weird kind of puritanism coming from the left around sex and gender and... Um, a lot of wanting to like the police of policing of bodies that I felt was strange coming from what I thought was a kind of free spirited party. And then like, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by like the policing of bodies from the left? The, just the, the talking about um, what you the the. The way you're allowed to talk about bodies or not allowed to talk about bodies the the like weird stuff that was coming down around women like the birthing persons and and people chest feeding and people yeah. with uteruses which to me sounds like the language of a serial killer yeah um or the way a misogynist might talk it was right. it was very strange i didn't know how to get my mind around it i certainly was like many americans and didn't know i wasn't very online and didn't know all of the lingo and pronouns and babies and a lot of this stuff and i really realized I, some a part of me was like maybe i'm just old and i'm like get off my lawn i felt like an old person and i'm like maybe i'm just old and maybe it is that old saying that if you're a liberal in your 20s whatever it is like the the one where it's like if you're yeah and if you're it's like if you're a liberal before you're 40, you have no brain. If you're a liberal or if you're conservative before you're 40, you have no heart. Yeah, something, something, like, something that. like that. <laughs> or like if something you're something like that. You're supposed to be old and conservative, basically. Right. And perhaps, perhaps that happens naturally with many people where they get older and they realize that a lot of those idealistic values that they had when they were young in real life practicality aren't quite as yeah um realistic as they might have seemed when you're 20 and you're like woo yeah um but i also do think that the the left just went super far left so there was a lot of language around sexuality in the body and it it just seemed like they were having less sex than ever before too which was strange and then there's like this all this talk about there's this weird antinatalism now. This is a thing that's been really coming up all the time lately, yeah. which I'm I I think is kind of dangerous. And I and I was also through sobriety and therapy and a lot of work coming to terms with a lot of the lies that I was telling myself about sex and love and a lot of the stuff that I bought into which wasn't really leaving me feeling great about myself at all. And so, yeah, it was like, a, I felt like I was growing up in public because then I started doing media just to talk about a lot of this stuff. And because they were the only people who wanted to talk to me, I got labeled like, you know, that classic like grifter or right wing, right wing yeah. reactionary and Nazi and yeah. carrying water for Nazis and yeah. white supremacists. I mean, it was All the whole thing. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So the anti-natalism, I want to talk to you about that. And I did, I heard something interesting from someone who, you know, she labels herself like a progressive Christian. Like we could not disagree on more things. Even though she calls herself a Christian, we probably disagree on more things than you and I do because <laughs> she's so far left on so many things. But one thing that she said that I thought was interesting that she posted on Instagram was that she only she tends to only see people on her side of the political aisle and the left side of the political aisle be so blatantly sometimes anti-children. That right. doesn't mean that everyone on the left is, but when she sees that, just anti-child rhetoric, like she was actually talking about a specific TikTok video where someone was like, F them kids. Yeah. Like, I don't feel 
feel bad, you know, when people are mean to kids, whatever. And she made a good point. She was like, you know, children are super marginalized in the world. Why is it only that people on the left seem to be so comfortable with being blatantly anti-children? She said, you know, I never see that on the right. Why, like, why do you think that is? Even knowing that, of course, most leftists don't feel that way, hopefully, about kids. But you do see that just kind of like ugliness about yeah. kids in childbirth from progressives sometimes. Yeah. It's disturbing to me. Yeah, it's weird. I think I, I would say for me, it was a lot of self-deception. I didn't have like anti-kids thing. I always loved kids. And I'm the oldest of five. But I was like, I'm not going to have kids. It's just not for me. But it was more, um, it was one part selfishness, other part, I really realized now looking back that I wanted a family, not just a kid. And so because I wasn't dating good men and I didn't have somebody that I loved, kids weren't even an option because I wasn't just looking for a kid. I was looking for like the whole thing. I wanted, I didn't want to raise a kid without a dad and um, it's totally possible to do it. But I just, I come from divorce and I didn't want to have to put a child through that if I could avoid it by marrying somebody that I kind of knew I wasn't really in love with just to have a kid. And I never really was into the idea of just having a child for the sake of having a child, although I completely understand why a woman would want to. And I just told myself I didn't want kids. It was easier for me to just tell myself I didn't want kids and confront all of that that I wasn't dating the right men, mm. that I wasn't in love, that I didn't feel like I deserved love or kids because of my slutty past and because of choices that I had made and addiction and all kinds of things that I didn't think I'd be a good mom. I mean, so much. So those were some of the fears and the lies that you were believing that you think were being masked by you're you just telling yourself well I just don't I just don't want kids yeah and also just and maybe even going over the top and being like you know that's those are just for like the breeders you know and I, I don't need to do that and I can just be a single woman and yeah. crush it and so that was my experience of it I'm not sure what's going on with this next generation down, it seems like, and I say there's an element of selfishness too, because how was I going to pay for a kid? I was a waitress who was still trying to like get by. So it's amazing really like a lot, the lies that we do tell ourselves to just justify a lot of the situation we might find ourselves in, decisions we're making that might not be great. And also just my circumstances that I didn't feel like were great for bringing a child into the world. But also I just wanted to like party and have fun and travel and I would have rather done that than have to be responsible for another life. And it yeah. was easy to, to say something. I think there, I'm, I'm pretty sure there must have been in my 20s. I'm sure if I find my journals, I know I was very worried about the environment and I'm sure I had that like what's the point of bringing a kid into the world I can just live and it, it's like justifying my own selfish desires yeah. by making it seem selfless <laughs> by making though. it seem political exactly yeah. like cool I'm doing and something for the world by not having a child and just right. traveling and doing the things right when it really is like yeah. the prime act I think of getting out of yourself but yeah, I mean, I've been through a lot of those. They're very basic evolutions. I see a lot yeah. of people go through them. How did you meet and when did you meet your husband? So we met in recovery, which is great because we share a lot of those values. But when we met, he was very early to sobriety. This was in 2017. And I had about four years of sobriety. He had like 90 days. Oh, and wow. So really new really new and it's like a no-no to date somebody who's new when you have time it's just not and I knew what that first year or two was like for me and how much I needed to be single and have that time alone to all this stuff is coming up like yeah. all your trauma all your resentments all your baggage all the stuff you've just been throwing in the bag they say that getting sober is like driving 100 miles an hour for mile for 100 million miles and throwing all the garbage in the back seat and then you slam on the brakes when you get sober and all the garbage comes forward. You still have to so you still have to deal with all of the garbage. It 
didn't actually just leave. You're yeah. trying to get away from it, yeah. right? Is yeah. that the like the metaphor? Well, and then you stop like and you start to deal it with it. In your backseat, and then you get sober, and it's like slamming on the brakes, and it all comes forward, and now you're just gotcha. sitting in all of your garbage mm. that you've been just throwing behind you, hoping you didn't have to think about. Okay, so the driving 100 miles an hour was just the drinking. Yeah, that was that was the drinking and the drugs, and the sobriety is the stopping. Yeah, and you have to deal with all of the trash. So there's yeah. in sobriety. Wreckage. There's I know that we're talking talking about how you met your husband, but just to take a little detour. So in sobriety, there's no way to not deal with the garbage that you've been driving with. Like, is that part of the recovery process is working through all of the garbage that's in the trunk? I think it's inevitable that it comes up. I'm sure you could find ways to avoid it. And they say it's like peeling an onion. And in my experience, that has been the case. You're only dealing with as much as you can because if you deal with too much, often it will drive you out. You know, mm. you don't want to deal with like... It's overwhelming. Yeah, it can be really overwhelming. If you're suddenly, you know, dealing with like dark trauma that in on day 30 of being sober, yeah. it's, it, too uh, much. it's too much. So I was, yeah, and just the process of going through the 12 steps takes you through all that garbage. Yeah. Like when you do a fourth step... It is literally an inventory of all your garbage. It's everyone, every fear you have, all of your resentments, every single person, place, thing, institution that you have a resentment for can go all the way back to kindergarten if you need to. And then you write, you know, what instincts is that affecting? Like your pride, self-esteem, sex life, money, and your and then most important column is the what is your part in that? So you're really looking... You're really looking through all of that stuff and, and taking responsibility, taking for responsibility your, yes. for it. And this is after doing, um, you know, turning it over to some kind of higher power. Many people come into sobriety not having any sense of higher power or anything. So it it could be the group of of t- the twelve step group, something if it bigger to be. than you, something something. Yep. And for you, this was back in 2013, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, let's say I'm trying to decide if I want to go to the higher power direction or the husband direction. All right, let's, okay, so that was 2013 for you. And then what does it look like in between 2013 and 2017 when you met your husband? Like, what does recovery long-term look like? Oh, it's so hard. It's really a miracle anyone does it. And I tip my hat to anyone who does because it's just a slog. I mean, it did, it wasn't pretty for me the first two years. And I was working, a very, I was kind of this classic I worked in a really strong program the first year. I threw myself into it. I went to meet. I had nothing to do in the beginning. I was waiting for this other waitressing job to start. So I was going to like three meetings a day just to stay sober. You have so much time suddenly that you didn't know you had. And And you're still working as a writer? I was not even, I was waitressing. So I hadn't even started. I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I was never getting paid to be a writer until 2015. Yeah. So I just was slogging through it and doing comedy still and I was like stand up mm-hmm. yeah that was one of the other places that just as a quick detour where I was seeing a lot of um censorship and it was another one of the areas where I felt like I was being pushed out of the yeah. left was I was seeing it in the comedy world and even in myself so I was still doing comedy during this time and I was still waiting tables and just trying to be put one foot in front of the other, doing the working the steps, meditating um, was a big part of my early sobriety. Thank goodness for this one meeting. And then trying to heal my relationship to some kind of higher power, which had been damaged yeah, <laughs> over the years. Because you were raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. And then when did you decide, okay, I'm not Catholic? Or was uh, it just kind of like it just. Yeah, it just kind of fell by the wayside. I always joked I was a recovering Catholic. There was just so much guilt around sex and um, I felt like it was so fear-based and I think I just moved away from it and became more of like a hippie. Yeah. And I was a big stoner. I I drank a lot, but I was like a huge stoner and I did yoga, so I was very into like the woo. Um, So my, my higher power for many years was like the, the, it was like a buffet from all of that, a lot of the new age stuff, a lot of um, like the great spirit, you know, yeah. like nature Just was something. a big one for me. Yeah. 
And do I you still never, think that's how you kind of identify spiritually? Um, I think I'm more... Uh, I have an interesting relationship with God now. but And my husband and I both struggle with this because he and I are both very skeptical in general. And we'll laugh at how like one... Because our relationship alone is like... It's crazy, actually. The story's crazy. We, we met, it was in 2017 when we met, it was Valentine's Day and the night before Valentine's Day and it was called the sad party. I called it the sad party. It wasn't called the sad party. I was calling it that. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm going to the sad party. And it was to hopefully meet him because uh, he had been in meetings and I was kind of hoping to see him, which apparently is the only reason that he went. And we were talking and... He just asked me like such an insightful question that not even my therapist had ever asked me, which was what was the quality of my emotional landscape? I mean, this is why he's a therapist. Yeah. What was the quality of my emotional landscape before I even started drinking? And I'd never even been thought about it. And I was like, well, fear. I was just always in fear. Mm. And then when I was leaving, we just kind of shook hands or touched hands. And there was this like electric pulse that went into my heart. I mean, I was letting my hand kind of drag behind me and it was like something shot into my heart and I turned around and I was like, what the was that? It was so weird. And then we, I got his number. We talked all night. We got breakfast the next morning on Valentine's day. And I was like, I can't do this. You're, you're 90 days. I feel horrible. We can't do this. It's just not, but we could not stop ourselves. And then you just I, knew. Did you feel like you just knew? At the time, but I'd also been through relationships with crazy people when yeah. there was that spark right away where yeah. it just fizzled out. So I didn't necessarily trust it. Yeah. And we, I was like, well, I'm going to um, mass. I was going to, it was... Um, God, so you were still, you were... I still still go to church. You still go to mass today. (laughs) Yeah, I still sometimes. It's not like I go religiously, but I still go. And it was, um, uh, it was when the Parkland Parkland shooting was. Yeah. What was the? Um. Why am I just having a brain fart? Um. Uh, the one where you get the cross on your head. Oh my gosh. I'm not Catholic. I know. I'm just blanking. You're not talking about Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just pregnant brain. Um, yeah, so we'll talk about that it was too. But. Ash Wednesday, and we and we. I, I was like, "Want to go to mass with me?" And he's like, "Sure." So our first day. So he was, wasn't Catholic though. No, but he, he was, was just nothing. like, "Okay, I want to spend time with this yeah, girl." Yeah, he was so. like, "That's kind of cool." Yeah. Um, and you know, we were in the program, talk a lot about God, and think about it, and. And so we went and we walked in and the guy who was like organizing where you sit, he was like, hey, can you two walk down the aisle and bring the Eucharist and the wine? And so the first date we ever had was in a church and we walked, walked down, down the, the aisle, aisle together. Oh my gosh, it's poetic. <laughs> it really was crazy. And then we ended up, um, then we came out and there was a Parkland shooting and I was so upset by it and just distraught. And... He came over and was just so sweet and nice and loving. And I had no, I had no idea how to handle a man like him at all. Mm. I didn't even think he was real. It was like, I didn't, I couldn't handle intimacy. I didn't, I was like, intimacy's creepy, eye contact and sex. No, I just could not handle yeah. any of it. And we kept we couldn't stay away from each other we kept on dating but i kept i would cry in every therapy session because i was so torn by what i felt what i was doing the wrong thing and also just my love for him and he was getting kind of more and more clingy the more he felt me pulling away which just wasn't good either because he was so new i'm like i don't want i don't this is so common in early sobriety a guy will meet girl or guy will meet each other Mm. and they'll like make you their higher power Mm. and so i broke up with him like five months into it and broke his heart and i kind of didn't even think twice i was like i'm off to do my single thing but also my work life was really starting to take off at that time and and because this is like at the time where you were kind of becoming yeah. a cultural commentator accidentally. <laughs> yeah, yeah accidentally and so we broke up and then 15 months went by 
my life drastically changed. I started, that was right when I started doing like media. And I think my first media hit was on the Ben Shapiro election special, one of his in 2018. And I was mean, like, talk about, I mean, that's a big deal. And that is like as conservative as it gets on Fox. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. I was on that too. I don't think, no, we, we weren't, weren't on, on the same, same night, but I, yeah, I remember I was one on yeah. one of those two. It's like a yeah, four week special on Fox. Yeah. Yeah, I think I was on with Lauren Chen yeah. and some crazy girl from Code Pink. Like oh, really? a, a lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> she like bombarded Ben in the middle of the interview with some question about Palestine that was complete. He asked her a question and she was like, well, oh, let me. And he, my was, gosh. he handled it so well, but yeah. it was complete non sequitur. And yeah. Yeah. That so fl- that was your big like conservative media debut. Yes. And so and it, so let me back up. My husband comes from a very conservative background. Oh, really? And he's a Republican. But not religious. Yeah, not religious. More Republican, I guess. But conservative values. And his family was like MAGA, you know? <laughs> I mean, really? His, his, they were parts of his family, definitely, yeah. And but y'all he, met in L.A. Is he from L.A.? Yeah, he's from... But they're MAGA. Oh, yeah. In L.A. But they were, like, in the desert and in, like, okay. Valencia area, not, gotcha. like, I'm LA. not super familiar, but... I guess it's just not all completely deep blue. No, it's not at all. That's why I always laugh at people who are like, we needed to go like these celebrities. They're like, we're going to Oklahoma to find somebody who's like these conservatives. (laughs) Yeah. These Trump voters. I'm like, like, you could drive like 45 minutes. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I know you don't. You go to Beverly Hills. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like that's MAGA country. Yeah. Um, And so, but he was so kind of turned off by all the MAGA and mostly like the cult of personality being a therapist i think he's just like oh yeah that is so dangerous and repellent right. so he was very turned off and he kind of came to the center and he was going through his own stuff um with depression and then he found guys like jordan peterson and and so I, the, I'll never Jordan forget. Jordan like, Peterson, the great gateway drug. The gateway drug. But he was actually, I think says. he made him more, like brought him more to the IDW side. Mm. And so I went to his house. That's I'll, the, for people that don't know, because I don't even know if I've ever said that. That's the like, intellectual dark web. Intellectual dark web. Yeah, it was like self, self-termed self by, I think, Eric Weinstein is the one who coined yeah. it. And then I think like Barry Weiss talked about it in the New York Times. Yeah, she wrote about it. And and it was like this conglomerate of people who are all talking in this middle space. I mean, Joe Rogan really like made all of these people to a certain extent because they, again, I think he really held the Overton window open. It's this very heterodox world where I would call a lot of them now are probably considered conservative. And some of them are like Ben Shapiro is a part of it and stuff. But that not everyone is like, certainly not MAGA, and certainly not everyone is necessarily on the right in the IDW. No, that, I mean, Sam Harris certainly isn't. Yeah. And Eric and Brett Weinstein, I think, still consider themselves liberals. Yeah. Dave, I would say, probably consider, Ruben consider Oh, he's conservative, conservative, for sure, yeah. Now, um, there was a lot of fracturing that happened, I think, in that space throughout those years. Um, Joe is still Joe, you know, he's just being he's I think he and I are very similar in that respect and that like yeah well listening to y'all's conversation for sure I mean I feel I know that we're going on another detour like when I'm listening to him I'm like you sound conservative in so many ways even though I know that he and I probably disagree on like a lot of social things like you and I do but just hearing him even talk about like vaccine mandates yeah, yeah. and things like that and Different things like, you know, a woman is a woman, not like just a yeah. uterus haver. That now gets you labeled as conservative. Right. And I just like, I actually appreciate the heterodox characteristic of people like you and Joe Rogan. Like, I like that you guys disagree on a lot of stuff because I feel like you guys have a power to persuade someone on the other side that maybe someone on the other side would write me off because they know I'm a Christian. Right. Even though I don't think that's a reason to write someone off someone might. I right. like that we have a lot of heterodox people yeah. now that are considered right wing. Like yeah. Dave Chappelle and I probably disagree on everything, yeah. but I appreciate his willingness to be like, you know what? I'm not going to be summoned by this group of people. Yeah. Anyway, it seems like going. principles of freedom. You know, that's yeah. really where there's like this group that's for it and there's a group that's more for centralization and mandates and, and speech policing and all that. Yeah. yeah. 
So um, my the first time I ever went to my husband's uh, place, he had all these books, and it was like Ion Hersey Ali, Christina Hoff Summers, um, the Gulag Archipelago, and I took yeah. a picture of it, and I was like, this is the guy who's like, I'm on a first date, and my audience was half like, run, and the other half was like, "Where? how did you find this guy in LA? Yeah. And so we shared a lot. We just could have like robust conversations, and because I come from the left and he comes from the right, we have really interesting reactions to news stories and we're both very aware of our biases and it's funny to just this is the podcast i want to start with him is where we talk about a lot of the mental health and addiction and all this stuff but also like just the different ways we'll uh, uh, react to a news story yeah. <laughs> just because of our factory setting yeah. programming so it was great. We just always had stuff to talk about, and um, he challenges me. He's f much smarter than me and brilliant, just brilliant. Reads all the time. But y'all broke up after we five broke months. up, and then fifteen months later, I was like, "I'm coming back to that meeting." And he had stopped kind of emailing me and being like, "Why we are meant to be together?" And I was like, "Go away, you're a stalker." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "Aren't you supposed to be a therapist? <laughs> you need to check yourself." And he did, and then he he went through like a montage. I think we were both in like montage sequences, but he was really in one where it was like grew a beard. Went to back to his got his degree to be an LMFT. He just um, bulked up. I mean, I so we went to get coffee. I was like, looks good. <laughs> I mean, he always looked good, but he looked really good. I was like, you're really really hot. <laughs> um, and then we we went and got coffee, and we were supposed to go watch some comedy, and I didn't want to do that. And we ended up going to dinner at Malibu, and we were together ever since. And that was like September Aww. of 2019. And then I had an ectopic pregnancy right away. I got pregnant like immediately right when we got back together. And um, that was pretty like traumatic and horrible. And it was a, uh, really showed me what kind of man he was. He was just there by my side through all of it, made sure I was okay. It was so loving. Made well, you sure were still dating at this point. We were just right? dating, yep. And then we went through that. Then we got engaged, and then the whole world shut down. Mm. And then we were quarantined together because he was working at a grocery store at that time, and I was sick. And so because – and I, I was living with my roommate, but she didn't want me to come back home. So he and I were in this apartment, his apartment, quarantined for like two, three weeks together. And we really got to know each other in that time, too, under this crazy duress of the whole world was going through and just living through that together and being together nonstop day in and day out. I was like, I could be I could live with this. Man. I could do this forever. Yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, we got married in November. It'll be year November 10th. Oh my gosh. Hasn't this year gone by so fast? It's crazy. The past couple of years have been such a blur. It's such a blur. It, and this past year, I'm like, can't believe it's already been a year. Yeah. And then now I'm, and I'm also pregnant. <laughs> now you're pregnant. Okay. So were y'all trying to get pregnant from the very beginning of marriage? We weren't trying. We just weren't not trying. Yeah. He was it's the not, not trying it's stage. The, yeah. yeah. It's the like trying, but, but it's not exactly like I'm young. I wasn't. I didn't have too much time. I think I really always was like, this is in God's hands. And this is why I say um, my faith in God now, because of the way things have unfolded in ways in which I cannot comprehend and are truly like, how much evidence do I need yeah. <laughs> that something is at work? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what, but when I really get out of my own way in those early days of being pregnant i it, the past three months i've really had to turn inward and turn over i mean i've been praying every day i mean my husband and i pray every morning anyway we say the third step prayer from 12 step we say it together but that's like as religious as we get and what's but, that um um god i offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will relieve me of the bondage of self that i may better do thy will take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those i may help of thy power thy love and thy way of life and then that's it may i do thy will always 
but I love the Relieve Me of the Bondage of Self. He got that inscribed in like an Etsy wood yeah. thing and we have it. I mean, that's huge. And that's so like, that's so counter countercultural. That's like, I mean, kind of what we talked about on, on your show. Yeah. It's like the bondage of self. We hear that more self is going to liberate us today. Yeah. And the gospel tells us the opposite. And you're repeating that to yourself every morning. Yeah. Without it's... even really knowing fully what you believe it sounds like that's what you were about to say right yeah that's I mean that is really I try to ground myself and um I know that when I'm out of my own will my life is I am better and by out of my own will when I'm not attached to results when I'm not comparing to other people when I'm not trying to manage the world in the way that I think it should be and really getting pregnant at 42 out of the freaking blue. I was told that I was in menopause. Like, mm. it's truly like wow. a freaking miracle child. So all of a sudden, I want to hear, how did you figure out you were pregnant? So it's crazy. And so I, in June, I was told that I was pregnant or that I was in menopause. But they couldn't. She wanted to put me on birth control, but couldn't because I also had to get a lump in my boob checked. I, it's all fine, but okay, I needed good. a biopsy. So she's like, we can't add hormones until you get your biopsy. And in that means Just like think about even like the timing. Yeah, I know if I got on birth control, I was thinking about that today. And Crazy. we um, but again, it's so much of like letting go. So much of it has been letting go. I've been just trying to. We went and talked to fertility specialist, and he was like, eh, looking at your levels, it's going to be like a miracle if we get, we're hoping for that like one golden egg, and I'm not going to lie, it's going to be hard and maybe not even possible. And he had me order all these prenatals, and I got them, like $250 worth, which because I got them from them, which was stupid, but I got them all, and... um not just prenatals, it was also like ubiquinol, which is something you take to increase, it helps like strengthen cell growth and can help with like egg, egg strength. Mm -hmm. And so I started taking them and then I was like, I, I looked at them when I got them like, what am I doing? I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't want this, I don't wanna try and force this because mm -hmm. I really wrestled with forcing this thing at this age when I felt like if I had really wanted it, I would have already done it. And I also was like, God has a plan for us. You know, maybe that's not what we're supposed to do. Maybe we're supposed to adopt. Maybe we're, there are other ways of being parents and we don't, we're not exactly rich. That, that it's a lot of money. If mm. some insurances pay for some of it, but it's still a, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And I was mad that I spent the money on those prenatals and my therapist was like well just take them they're good for your hair and your nails and your skin so yeah. just take them yeah and I started taking them and then we went back he hadn't met my family because we got married in COVID and they'd never met him so in July or August we went home I started taking them in like July and sometime in August we went home and he met everybody all the babies my sister had a baby my Sister-in-law had her third child and I kept waiting for like the pang of longing and we were I, my sis, other sister has teenage boys. She started very young and so we saw how hard it was and the reality but we were also we sat on the beach and we, I was like are you okay if we don't have kids? Are you okay with that? And he's like yeah I'm fine if you're okay with that. He's like I just worry and get emotional. He's like I just don't want you to regret anything. And I was like, I'm, I really just, I couldn't like bear to, I've seen women go through that, like fertility and it can be so heartbreaking and you invest yourself in it and then you're disappointed and sometimes it works and it's like a miracle and I know so many people who are like, do it, try, it's like this huge blessing, but I also didn't want to like lose my mind over it and we um we just decided that we were fine with that and we he's like I remember going on that walk and we came back home I went and sat my um OB to get the pills the birth control pills and she gave them to me and I for some reason didn't take them mind you I was taking prenatals every single day during that vacation yeah. like religiously I never take any pills like this this is so unlike me and I came back and I was about to book all these travels and he's like, will you please take a pregnancy test? Because my boobs were sore. And I was like, 
exhausted and he's like Bridget I think you might be pregnant and I and you were just my, like no 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 I hadn't got my period so the reason I thought I was in menopause was I got vaccinated didn't get my period for 90 days now that could be my age or it could just be like one of the weird vaccine things and then I got it and I got it again so I got it in June and that's when I went and talked to her and she's like let's test your levels you're in menopause and then I got it and again in July and so when I went to see her again, when I got back in August, I was like, I haven't had my period in like 40 days. And she was like, that's just the menopause. Didn't even test me. Wow. So you're Didn't like, even okay. like, give me a freaking yeah. pregnancy test, wow. which is actually kind of negligent giving my history of ectopic. Right. You, you were more likely to have an right. ectopic. So he a week later was like, will you please take this test just to, for peace of mind before you go to South Africa and I was supposed to go to Europe and like all these places and New York and I took it. I was like, fine, I'll take it. It's going to be negative. Was and it I a took digital it. or was it one of the lines? Like lines. Yeah. And I took it and I was like, see, and the one line popped up and then like immediately the other one popped up. Oh and my I was gosh, like, what oh was your God. reaction? It was it just like you couldn't believe it. I called my best friend immediately. Like I, I texted her. I was like, holy because she's pregnant with twins and it's IVF um, wow. and she's pregnant with two twin girls and it's like four days. We're four days apart. Um, so she's, and she's like my spiritual sister of life. We've known each other. We met in Catholic school, actually, when we were in first grade. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And she, she's just kind of like walked me through it. And she was like, you need to get into a doctor because yeah. F her, she should have like, you yeah. should have known this a week ago. Yeah. And she basically came and saw me and did an ultrasound. She's like, it's in there. There's a sack. It's not necessarily, it was five weeks. Oh, yeah. So you can't, you can't not see even the viable. Yeah, Nothing. Yeah. It's just, a, literally, it was just a sack. Yeah. And she was like, I was like, how do I make it stick? And she's like, honey, if I knew that, I'd be like a billionaire on the private yeah. island. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So... But you could at least see that it wasn't an ectopic pregnancy. That's what I needed to know. It's in the uterus. Yeah. Yep. And so it was. She was like, "No, it's intrauterine." You know, it's like and Which she's is like, and there's good all news. this like healthy exo, whatever it's called, like that, like white healthy yeah, stuff yeah. you see around it. And I was like, "Holy crap!" But then it was just like, "Well, we wait." And so I got a new OB. <laughs> yeah. And made an appointment, and at six weeks, it was weird. It was like. Right when the abortion ban came down, the six-week abortion ban happened, in I was Texas. six weeks. <laughs> I was like the exact same week yeah. in Texas. And that was when I, um, you can't hear the heartbeat yet, but you can see it. Mm -hmm. So that was a like very strange experience. Have you had another ultrasound since then? I've had two more. I had to go every two weeks because oh, really? I'm a geriatric. And what was it like when you saw, because at eight weeks, it looks almost like this little jelly bean with this like little beating heart. And then for me, like it was such a big difference from that first. That was the first time I had at eight weeks. And then the second time I had one at 11 and a half weeks. And then all of a sudden it was a baby. Yeah, like, no, it's all crazy. Of a kicking, moving, like flipping around. I saw the brain, the ribs, the yeah. teeth. That was insane. That was when I like just lost it. Did you, was that like surprising for you? Well, it's weird because I saw it from the sack and then it was really just, I had to, I don't really remember. It feels like a blur because I was in that weird purgatory of knowing I was pregnant, but like I had to turn it over. It was, and I didn't want to, I was saying on Rogan, like I, I really had to turn it into like a new age mantra person because I have so much fear and really had to face feeling like I didn't deserve it. And I was like, why do you feel like you don't deserve this child? Mm. And the fear, just the natural fear everyone has about those scans in the early days yeah. and so much can go wrong and I'm older so even more can go wrong and I just really had to pray. I read my little like readings every morning and turned uh, turned it over. I was like, this is, I kept just telling myself, this is, God's got this. Like this is in God's hands and whatever will be, will be. And then we, I saw it again at six like eight weeks and and that was when I got to hear the heart and that was crazy that was crazy um and emotional and then I saw again at 10 weeks because he wanted me to come just to make sure because my the first day of my last period wasn't it's not accurate at all from when I actually yeah. conceived so he was like 
we want to just make sure that you're on track um, with the development. And then they did the test at the 10 and a half weeks for chromosomal abnormalities in the sex. And that's when we found out it was a girl and things were looking healthy. And then, and at that point too, I was really coming to terms with like, would it even matter if it came back? You know, like they they do all these screenings and they're like, well, this is so you can make a decision. I'm like, like I've made the decision. I don't think I could be like, I don't want that. Like no matter what it, what? Right. It felt like such a miracle that no matter what, it felt like it was supposed to be, no matter whether it was, down syndrome or healthy i you know there's still it's still very new there's still baby yeah so then i got to then he got to come with me for the like 13 week one where they do the nt test you know the like what measure the water in the base of the skull and the bridge of the nose they do a lot with like geriatrics <laughs> and and um they actually they legitimately do call it a geriatric no they do pregnancy you're not just saying that they call it geriatric even <laughs> yeah. though you're not geriatric no it's, a, my, it's like over 32 i 35. think they call it geriatric yeah it's <laughs> just crazy, crazy. So but it's good that they, I mean, that they're, they're being on the careful. side of caution. Yeah. And then that's when I was like, holy crap, it went from this little like tadpole yeah. to like baby. Arms, legs, Like chicken. she had fingers and legs and arms and like, like you around. said, you could see the brain still yeah. the, the, and the spine. You and can see it all. It's she was crazy. like yawning. I was like, yeah. oh my God, this yeah. is so crazy. And then he's like, okay, we'll see you in a month. Everything. Boring and, so, and that's so where far. you are right now. You're waiting. Yeah. But I feel ultrasound. I wouldn't even let myself get excited. Yeah. And I think it was like a weird. I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic by nature about everything. Even if it's like business, I'm just like that. But in this instance, it was kind of I f- would talk to my therapist about it. Like what a funny form of self-protection as if I wouldn't be enormously disappointed even if I got excited, yeah, it's like a weird form of self-protection. Like, like I'm not still going to be crushed if something happened. But it's yeah. just my, I, she's like, you have a messed up upbringing. Like, this is normal. And many people are, she's like, I was superstitious. It's not uncommon. But it also felt like a weird way of me trying to control something I had no control yeah. over. You don't. So, yeah, now we're just, I have 14 weeks. and. It's weird because I'm feeling better. So I'm like, oh, am I pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you go from rem- yeah. being reminded of it every day, all day. Because you're sick. And yeah. then, But the second trimester is so much better. And then kind of what we were talking about before we started recording, that third trimester is when you like don't really want to do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, towards the end of it, you'll yeah. probably, I mean, you might feel great all the way through the end. But I went all the way to almost 42 weeks with both of my kids, which is a long time to be pregnant wow. and you get really uncomfortable. And plus I gained like a million pounds. Some people don't and they feel and look great. But towards the end, I was super uncomfortable. But there's that sweet spot. Yeah. And you're about to enter into it. Yeah. From like 16 to 28 weeks. That's what life everyone is good. says. Where it's like you have the cute bump and like you're oh, feeling yeah. horny. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. You like look really cute. Yeah. And so. Yeah. It's a good time. It's so a good time. She's, it's so weird. I'm like, I hope she's fine down there because yeah. you're kind of like. Well, and you can't feel her yet. No. And you will. Like in a few weeks, you'll feel her. And so that'll be your indicator, you know. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. She just kicked. She's fine. Yeah, but yeah. right now it's like, are you even in there? Yeah. Because she's like what? Like the size of like. A lemon or something. Yeah. yeah. so insane. Tiny. It's so crazy. Man, there's so many other things I could ask you. Do you, the last thing, the last thing since we're running out of time. I wonder if your view about God and that higher power, do you feel like it's changed as your kind of cultural views have changed and even your views of motherhood and marriage and yourself have all changed? And do you think that it will continue to evolve? Yeah, I think it's, I think I've, if I've learned anything that it's just that I'm constantly evolving. Like I don't know anything. I'm constantly reminded how little I know. I just don't, me, Sitting on that beach and being like, I'm fine without, we're good. We are, we don't need to have kids. And then finding out we're pregnant. We were laughing because it's that, yeah. like that old saying of man plans and God laughs. Yeah. And I just, that's all I've been like all thinking. all the little things with like the lump in your breast, not being able to be on birth control. All of like, it. Like all the little things so clearly work together. I know. And it, it is like a little 
It's crazy. It was really fun telling his mom. That was like my most exciting thing. We, yeah. We just surprised her. We waited to tell most of our family. I told friends and people that I would need if something went wrong and I would need support from girlfriends, but... I didn't tell my dad or like his mom until we got a lot of the testing back and knew what the sex was. So because we wanted, to, I didn't want her to have to go through all of the. Yeah, it was anxiety, a lot of anxiety, just trying to manage it, the anxiety and be like my dumb little mantra of like I'm in perfect health, my baby's in perfect health, this pregnancy is going to go perfectly. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like or whatever it will be, it will be. But just yeah. trying to manage that positive about it counterbalance the negative yeah 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 it's been a it's been a journey i do think i do think it has evolved and how i mean it's hard for me not to believe in god when when i saw that heartbeat i was like i i don't understand anything yeah yeah well i just hearing you tell your story not just motherhood but from the very beginning i see the providence of God and Mm. the specificity in his plans and purposes for you. And even just like hearing you wrestle through a lot of the lies, all of us have believed lies at one point, but hearing the lies that like accompanied addiction and then overcoming them with sobriety, like I certainly see what we would say, like is the hand of the Lord. And even you repeating, gosh, I think that's such a solid and good prayer that you repeat every morning. If it's worth anything, I feel like I see the Lord in your life and has worked so clearly throughout your life and in the life of your little girl. Mm. And so it's really encouraging. I think a lot of people are going to be encouraged by this too. Where can people find you, support you, follow you? Um, you can find me at Walkins. Welcome is my podcast. So please subscribe. We have talked to all kinds of lovely people like yours truly. You. Um, <laughs> like, like like yours really like, like me. you yeah. not me um and we also have dumpster fire which is on youtube and rumble uh and my website where you can subscribe it's like a whole community of very politically homeless people um where we talk about all kinds of things but i do workouts with the women every day uh we do it on zoom which i love okay i didn't know that somehow i'll give you the link wow i should do that because it's i'm amazing. not working out right now and i need to be it's a half hour it's tons of women who just had babies honestly like Great. three or four of them and it's only a half hour and are it's you like, leading the workout no i just play i stream this one woman that i love and Y'all we just all just follow it it's really just like hold each other accountable and to show up. What time is it? It would be like two o'clock your time. And I can I do turn it. off my camera. Oh yeah, everybody does if okay, they want to. That's good. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> such a great supportive, amazing group of women, and um, they're just they've we've walked through like all kinds of stuff, and now and yeah, two I think three of them just had babies, and some are pregnant now. Aww. I just found out like three of us are pregnant in there. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's so, really cool. Yeah, I have a subscriber site, and that's it's not even that expensive actually it's just really a place where we put like the unedited dumpster fire and just extra content yeah it's a safe space yeah very (laughs) cool well thank you so much bridget i really appreciate you you taking the time to come on i really love you thank you oh thank you 